Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Well, today we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2. One of the things that I feel kind of compelled to say this morning is as we go through the Word, uh, I know over the last couple of weeks we keep seeing these, these tests that John gives us so that we can have assurance of our salvation. He doesn't just give blanket assurances. He gives us like tests that we can process through so that we can have the assurance. Like if this is true, then this is true. So I write these things that you may, and we'll talk about some of those in a moment. But as you work through there, there, there are some really, really hard things that John says, some really difficult things that John has caused us to have to process and to think. And so one of the things that I want to say to you this morning is that often you can come to church and you're like, man, I really wish somebody would just tell me how great I am. I really do understand that. I do understand the, the desire for, sometimes you just want to take a breath. But one of the things I've heard the Lord say to me is that God's word is heavy so that your life doesn't have to be. And so I just want to encourage you this morning, if God's word is heavy, it's only a gift that he gives to us so that our life doesn't have to be heavy. And so really it's freeing. His word isn't heavy unless we are in rebellion against it. And so I hope that that not necessarily softens the blow, but I hope that that helps us to, to put in a context so that when we do struggle through scriptures and we do struggle with difficult truths, that we can say, boy, God is good when it's hard and God is good uh, when, when it's, you know, I won't say easy because I've not found it to be easy, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but it certainly is, is good. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. And John begins by saying, I am writing to you, which by the way, he says this a lot. There's lots of reasons that he wrote this letter. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the, desire and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, at first glance, when you look at verses 12 through 14, and you compare those to 15 through 17, they don't seem to go together. It's like John has taken a break, and he gets back to his writing, and he begins to write on a different thought. But if you look at it very closely, with close inspection, these verses complement each other wonderfully in light of the previous passages. Verses 12 through 14 actually provide the encouragement that's going to be absolutely essential and necessary in order to obey the exhortations found in 15 through 17. The encouragement we find at the beginning is necessary so that we can remain obedient to the ending. 
And what, one of the things that, that I believe that John drives home is that, that we belong to God. We are not teammates. We are not employee, employer. We are not partners. We are in a familial relationship with him. We have become a part of his family. He is our father and heaven is our home. And John takes just a moment, not will be our home, by the way, is our home now. We are already seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That is a current reality if you are living in the kingdom of God now. You do not have to wait for heaven to be able to live in the kingdom. The kingdom is wherever Jesus is. And when Jesus is here, we are already citizens of that kingdom. And so we can already place our citizenship with him there. And so with these things in mind, with God as our Father, one another as brothers and sisters, knowing that heaven is our home, it is hardly conceivable that if we truly live this and truly believe this, that we would give the world any standing in our life at all. I mean, if we really understood it, really, like he said a couple of weeks ago, if he knew that he knew, if he was in the process of knowing what he had learned, because it continues to, to, uh, to increase and to develop the things that we're learning about Jesus. I know him, but I am knowing him. Knowing that heaven is our home. How can we love and how can we be so comfortable here, loving the things that are here, loving the things that the world has to offer here? How can we be so comfortable around the traps that Satan sets and to allow the world to develop our heart's desires? Verses 12 through 14 are, are beautifully structured, rhythmic, poetic, and incredibly complicated. Uh, six times, he says, in just these couple of verses, I write or I have written, and they are written this way for effect. Uh, they, they virtually mean the same thing. One is present tense, one is aorist tense, but they, they virtually mean the same thing here. But it clearly divides these phrases into two sets. The first three, I am writing to you. The second three, I write to you. And there are three different terms that John uses to identify his audience. And yes, they are important. He refers to little children or children, and, and when he does this, he's referring to all believers. This is not the first time that he has called the entirety of the congregation of the whole church his, his little children. He writes to the fathers. These are not like, like, like he's not speaking to gender, and he's not speaking to age. He is speaking to maturity in the faith, mature believers, and then he writes to young men. And again, not to gender and not to age, but to maturity, those that are working toward more maturity. These are newer believers, not brand new, but newer believers in the faith. And yes, John has been a little bit difficult so far in his teaching. He's been a little rigid under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So you remember the test. He says, I write these things that you may know, and knowing and Loving God, how do I know that I love God and how do I know that I am a follower of God? First, he says, you obey the teachings of Jesus. That's how you know. Are you walking in obedience to what Jesus has taught? And then he gives us another test beginning in chapter two. I write these things so that you may knowing and loving God equals loving each other. 
how you walk in relationships to the world and to the people around you is a really good litmus test of what you're doing with the love of God. So the obedience of God's word, the obedience to the commands of Christ, and the obedience to loving one another with the love that we have received from him is great indications of how we find assurance in our faith. And now, listen, this is great news. John lets us breathe a little. Now, not a lot, but a little. He gives words of encouragement after each of these addresses, and he assures them, and then he reassures them. They belong to God, their Father, and they enjoy the blessings of that relationship. Docetism is uh, active in the early church. And these false teachers had crept in, like, like the apostles are establishing churches, and then as they move on to the next church, these false teachers creep in. Those kinds of things still happen today around, around the world, but it certainly happened a lot in the first century. But these false teachers had begun to teach the congregations to forsake the basic essentials of Christian faith. This particular group no longer believed that Jesus came as a human being. In fact, the word docetism actually means like a, a, an artificial or a, a phantasm, some kind of a phantom, that when Jesus was here, he became flesh, or, or they would say was made to look like flesh, but was not really. He was always just a spirit. So Jesus didn't die for us physically. He was always just a a phantom. And, and so that begins to impact everything else you believe. It begins to affect the authority of Jesus's commands. They no longer believed that they were sinful. They abandoned the idea that salvation through the work of Christ was even possible. They, because of that, they did not love one another. These immature followers of Jesus have begun to believe. So John sends them back to remember. Two things that he reminds them of. Number one, your sins are forgiven. You need to remember that your sins are forgiven. You also need to remember that your sins are forgiven for his namesake. So those are two reasons to rejoice. So shifting gears just a little, Christians need not have a debilitating fear of sin because we know that God forgives sin. Every Christian also knows that God takes sin very seriously. I want us to understand that this morning. God takes sin very seriously. But we should not be debilitated by sin's power in our life. A lot of Christians act like they're terrified of sin. Terrified to be around sinful people. Terrified to be around things that might rub off on them. Terrified to be around people who might need a little extra love or a little extra encouragement. We tend to point our finger at people and we tend to say, well, they made their bed. They need to, what is it? If you lie down with dogs, you get, we could do this all day because we all know those cliched statements. Because that's the way we treat people. And so we're, we're kind of act like we're afraid of sin. We're afraid to talk about our own sin too, by the way, because what will people think about us if they know who we really are? Why would Christians be worried about how other Christians would perceive their sinfulness? 
because we've all been burned. Amen? It's because we spend way too much time focusing on sin and far too little time focused on forgiveness. But God is able to forgive. But God also takes, so when I say that, I want, to be able, I want us to walk in that, in that healthy spot of, yes, sin cannot dominate our life, like thinking about it and ter- being terrified of it all the time. But we need to understand how God feels about sin as well. In fact, that's the reason that John wrote the letter. I write these things that you may not sin. So we know that God takes it seriously. But when we know when we know that our sins are forgiven, so many of us have wrestled with assurance of our salvation. I don't, we won't have time to do a quick survey, but if I said, how many of you hope that your sins are forgiven, how many of you would raise your hand? And I would say, why in the world would you hope that your sins are forgiven? You shouldn't, of all the things there is to hope for, hoping that your sins are forgiven isn't one of them. We shouldn't live in that hope. We should live in that assurance that sin is forgiven. When you are focused on the hope that your sins are forgiven, you're focused on your goodness. And that's why we struggle with the assurance of our salvation. Because now that my sins are forgiven, our keeping faith is tied to how well we have done since. But I'm telling you that if we knew that God forgives ultimately through Jesus Christ, and when we focus on the assurances that we get from the cross, we would walk in assurance. We would walk in power, and we would walk in freedom, and we wouldn't be worried about every little thing that we've ever done in our past. Listen, that should cause us just to have a massive spiritual exhale. We aren't still seeking forgiveness or hoping for forgiveness might happen. John says we we are forgiven. And he's talking to all Christians. Remember that. It's important. He's talking to everybody. If you call yourself Christ follower, you need to remember first and foremost, you're not who you used to be. So remembering that should encourage us and empower us to walk in obedience now moving forward. Are we going to fall? Yes, John, 1 John 1, 9. If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Move very, when you sin, move very quickly. And remember who you are, repent of that, and he's going to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That's what he does, right? Don't tiptoe around hoping I never make a mistake again because you start resting in your perfection rather than his. Again, be careful. We're not giving you permission to sin. I write these things that you may sin not. There's a balance. So let me ask you a question. What brings you assurance? What do you need when you think about, am I a Christian or not? What brings you assurance? How well you have lived since you became a Christian? Or the cross of Jesus Christ? Where does your assurance lie? The finished work of Jesus or your goodness? And I'm telling you, the easiest thing in the world is to take your eyes off the cross and start focusing on how well you have done. And you're going to walk like this. 
as a follower of Jesus. Now, forgiveness of sin is a great reminder. And we should focus on forgiveness, not the sin. So one of the things that I think that the Lord taught me through this, and I, listen, whew, there, nobody has struggled with assurance like I have. I don't say that arrogantly at all. I'm saying, I'm saying this as things that God is teaching me currently. But forgiveness is enough of a reminder to keep us humble. Remembering that we have been forgiven keeps us humble. But focusing on the sin keeps us paralyzed and numb. Quit focusing on the sin in your life and focus on the forgiveness. And yes, we are desperate for forgiveness. And he gives them, remember, he gives them two reasons to rejoice. Number one, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Blessed to be a blessing. This is a, a so that. I want you to understand that every gift that God gives, everything that God gives, in, including his, the identity that he gives us, his love that he gives us, the grace and the mercy, the forgiveness of sin, everything, his name, his identity, uh, everything that God has given us, he has given us so that it will flow through us. Everything. Is a, has a so that attached to it. There's a, a, a missionary writer, uh, Don, uh, uh, Don Richard, Peace Child, Don Richardson wrote this top line, bottom line. It's like the top line is blessed, bottom line to be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. What, what is God? God has a relationship with Adam, give that away to Eve. God has a relationship with Abraham. He says, I'm going to call you out. You're going to be a special people to me, and you're going to be blessed. What is it? And for some reason, Western Christianity has said, blessed, blessed, blessed. We spend all of our energy focused on being blessed. We have forgotten the so that. Even the escape from, is, uh, from Egypt for Israel. Go back and look at that in the book of Exodus, how many times God tells Moses what he's going to do for Israel. And every time you will see a, so that Egypt will know that there is a God. So that Pharaoh will know everything that God does has a so that attached to it for his glory's sake. So here what John is saying is that you have had your sins are forgiven, but not for your glory for his name's sake. Not for your name's sake. Not because you are worthy, but because he is worthy. Lest you forget. Because you can start focusing on, well, I'm free. I'm free. God has forgiven me. And you start walking in that freedom. And you know where that freedom will take you? False teachers. But if you remember why you are saved, has a so that attached to it, has a conduit attached to it, has a blessed to be a blessing attached to it, you'll be tethered to forgiveness and you'll find certainty in ministry. Looking for opportunities to make your faith in Jesus Christ about his glory and not about yours. So I say this, I say this often, those of you who are here very often will know that if you are the central character of the story you're telling, you're telling it wrong. This verse right here takes you 
from being the central character and places Jesus as the central character. Now that your identity is in Jesus, he did not just forgive you. He has forgiven you so that your salvation can make much of his name. His name, his fame, his glory. So don't forget that you're forgiven. See, Are you saying that we're not free? No, we are free. And you will see every time that the Bible talks about us being free, we are free in Christ. So this concept keeps Christians humble. So the question that I would ask you, is Jesus being glorified through your story? When you talk about all the things that you're doing, all the things that you've done, all the things that you hope and dream, are those things connected to the glory of God? Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our resurrection. Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is now our king. So our forgiven, uh, our sins have been forgiven. And there's a constant reason to bring Jesus glory. You're empowered to share your failures. You know what? I could tell you the deepest, darkest things that I've ever done because they're not me anymore. And the deeper my story, the darker my story, the more glory he's able to get. I'm not trying to protect my glory in keeping my mouth quiet about all the shameful things I've done. I'm able to release that because praise be to Jesus. Look what he's done in my life. It's funny how we, we use salvation to make our, and even when we tell our story, we talk about how terrible we used to be, but, but now by the grace of God, look at me. I hear people say, I hear people talk like this, live like this. It's like, well, I'm not who I used to be. Oh, you ought to have seen how I used to be. Now look what, wow. You know, when someone is forgiven, they're not the hero. The forgiver is the hero. Jesus is the hero of your story. If we forget it, you know what will happen? you'll begin to believe the hype about yourself. And when you, when you are no longer guarded regarding the truth, you, you'll fall for all sorts of false teaching. Well, John then quickly breaks down the stages of development within our faith in the church. And he talks about fathers. You've known him from the beginning. John's implication is that these, these people, and by the way, he's not just talking to men. So they have known him that is from the beginning. John's talking about these people who have a really, really large rearview mirror. They, they said yes early on in the ministry of Jesus. They have been following Jesus for, for a while. They have seen God's faithfulness. They have endured. They have, they have stuck around. Uh, their own story has given birth to more stories. Their faith has been tried and proven. They have dealt with difficulties. They're older in the faith, spiritually mature, possessing qualified spiritual authority and leadership. They are old enough in the faith to understand that new is not always better and old is not always bad. And as seasoned Christians, they have people that they have led to the Lord. They have had children, converts, and ministry. And then he writes to young men. These, and, and again, you can look at every, you go back through it and, and read it with this lens and you'll see it pretty clearly. These are the people in the church that have found satisfaction in holy living and victory over sin. 
It refers to spiritual maturity. They are not who they used to be. They have seen the transformation from who they were before Jesus and they're beginning to walk in that authority. Obeying him. These Christians are engaged in the battle with Satan. They are currently learning things as they walk faithfully. And in this fight, John notes the certainty of victory in both 13 and 14 and the weapon of the warfare. And he uses the word overcome, which is nakeo, and it's in the perfect tense. It means that at one point they had won the victory, but that victory continues is what it means. They have conquered in the past and the results of that victory remain in effect from now on. The victory came the moment they believed in Jesus and it continues as they walk faithfully with him. So you look at verse 15, he says they are strong and he also says they have overcome the wicked one and in the middle of these three admonitions, he says the word of God abides in them and this is so imperative. I want you to see that the reason that they're able to have victory is that... They have been obedient to God's word abiding in them. Don't miss that because John's not really talked a lot about that up to this moment. It's about obedience to Jesus' commands, yes, but these people are allowing the words of Jesus to dwell in them. They're being, they're being um, empowered by it. I want to say this with clarity, but I want you to notice how it is God's word God's word, not willpower, that is the secret and source of our strength. It's God's word, not willpower. It's God's word, not spiritual habits. It's not church attendance. It's not the sins that we've given up. It's God's word implanted in our life that is where the power comes from. Walking in obedience to God's word, not being a better version of your former self and maintaining that facade, the implanted word of God dwelling in us. You can see that all through Psalm 119. Blessed are the undefiled in, in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies and seek him with what? A whole heart how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. I write these things that you may not sin. I will delight myself in your statutes and I will not forget your word. Over and over we see the importance of the word of God to help us in victory. So everyone... Seasoned and novice, all the children in the church has seen proof of their faith. They've seen evidence. They have seen a good track record of God's faithfulness. They've overcome so much and some of them are overcoming right now. They're experiencing the transformation that is occurring in their daily life. They're seeing spiritual growth take place in themselves and they know better than to fall for these false teachers that's trying to trip them up and take them away. That's what John is saying. You know better than this. You've seen too much. 
to give up now. But when you forget, you're going to fall. Then when, and when you fall, you'll fall back into doubt, back into sin, back, back into false identity. And that's going to open you up to false teaching. Verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. This is so beautiful now that you'll know what he's combating. It's like, you know better, so let me remind you of where the power comes from. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is up from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And I'm telling you, the world will constantly call us to come over to its side. Sometimes it will trip you up. Sometimes it'll lure you over. And it'll say things like, oh, you can still be spiritual. Just don't take it too seriously. Oh, you can think Jesus is important. Just don't believe that he's preeminent. Oh, you can love God and you can also love the world. And John says, not so. Not so. In verses 15 through 17, John moves from assurance back to warning. Where you, where you find comfort, where you find ambition, where you are drawn will determine who you become. And who you are will determine how you live. Now, if you go back to the very first three words, do not love this is written in the present imperative. And again, I know that that don't mean a whole lot. But what John is saying is stop loving the world always. Like that's always a truth because from the moment that you stop loving the world, the very moment you say the world makes me sick, I want to see the kingdom of heaven. From that very first moment, there's a part of you that immediately starts turning back to the world. But be constantly vigilant not to love the world because it is on, it is, what say, not, not neutral, but it is the most natural thing that you have is to be tempted and lured by the things of the world. And as soon as you don't, you are again. That's what he says. Be in a constant state of not loving the world. And it's going to be a constant fight against it. Now, you do a quick study here, you, and it's the word agape. He says, don't, don't give the world the love that I gave you. Because I want that love back. I want it reciprocated. Blessed to be a blessing. I gave you love so that you would love. And I give you that love, and what do you do? You turn it against me. Think about that. Every time you prefer the system of the world, you're giving God's blessing that he expects return to him away. That's why he's jealous for it. That's why he wants it. The word world is mentioned six times here in three verses. And it's used three different ways in Scripture. Number one, like creation, like everything you look at, right? Don't love the world. Don't spend too much time out in the woods. That's ridiculous, right? Because God created the world. And when he created everything that he created, he said it's good. 
What about humanity? But we don't love humanity, the world. No, I don't think that would be true either because for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So we're not called to, your context tells us what it is and so obviously it's this evil organized satanic system that opposes God. John 16, John said, the spirit convicts of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, listen, this, this desire for the things of the world is in constant combat against the love of God. And, and so I know maybe the temptation for many of us would be to, to learn how do you live in balance? How do you live in balance between love, loving the world, like being a part of the world and, and, and having dreams and ambition and drive and, and, and making something of yourself in this world and also living in the balance of, yes, it all belongs to God. How do you walk in the balance? And I'm going to make this very, very easy. There is no balance. If you're trying to live in balance, you're going to constantly be tripping yourself up. There is no balance. There, the love that God gives us will not compete. It will not compete. If you're going to live in both loves and try to walk in the balance of those, God will not compete. And living in both love default, always will default to the love of the world. It will always win. So Satan and his worldly traps and enticements, they offer a fool's gold. Everything that God gives is a blessing. Satan tries to manifest some kind of a substitute for it. Something that will allow us to indulge our carnal fleshly desire. It'll continually wage war against us. And sometimes not always like in an aggressive way, but in for us, it will always try. Sometimes it's not bad. Sometimes it doesn't look bad. Sometimes it doesn't look evil. But it's proportional to your taste, to your desire. Let me, let me try to say it this way, and we'll try to hurry. If you think Satan doesn't watch what you watch, you're crazy. He reads what you read. He watches what you turn your eyes toward. He knows what your tastes are. He knows what will lure you offside. He knows it may be better than you do. Because you'll give yourself the benefit of the doubt, and he will not. Uh, he, he knows you very, very well. And so sometimes it's not Satan trying to lure you over to hell. Sometimes he's trying to lure you over to your taste. Don't we have to be more wise than he is? Shouldn't we be insulted that he thinks we're that easy prey? I'm telling you, if you will remember that your sins are forgiven and you remember for whose glory you live, you won't be so quickly enticed. It's a system that seduces us. It makes sin look cool. It makes righteousness and holiness look intolerant and pharisaical. It calls holiness legalistic. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to him who says evil is good and good is evil. Who takes darkness and makes it light and light to darkness. Boy, if we've ever lived upside down on those things, it's today, right? 
tough. I, I, I hate the concept that when, when he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I think, man, I wish that there was a way just to defeat him. Just like, okay, I'm done with that. Check. <laughs> I don't have to fight Satan anymore. But that's the one thing. You don't ever get to, you just resist him. You just resist him, resist him, resist him. I think of Luke chapter 4 when Jesus is being tempted. And when he's finished the temptation, it says, and Satan withdraws for a more opportune time. He's coming back. But depending on which you feed, your spirit or your flesh will determine how strong your ability to resist the temptation will be. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, all that is in the world, not for some for all that is in the world. The primary enemy is in here. And he goes on to say that. These are the same three weapons that ruined Adam and Eve. Verse 6 of Genesis 3, when the woman, what is it? Saw that the tree was good for food, good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Good for food, lust of the flesh, desirable to the eyes, lust of the, anybody want to guess? Lust of the eyes, desirable to make one wise, pride of life. Those are the same three weapons that were conquered by Jesus in the temptation. Luke 4, we just talked about that. The devil said to him, you know, uh, remember, Jesus is hungry. He's been fasting for 40 days. Command this stone to become bread, lust of the flesh. Showed him all the kingdoms of the world, lust of the eyes. From the pinnacle of the temple, he said, throw yourself down from here and he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you the pride of life. These three things continually gnaw at us. The things we see, the things we desire, the people that we can become. The, the lust of the flesh appeals to our appetites, our self-indulgence, our cravings, our, our strong desires. By the way, this word is neutral. It has no power whatsoever except the power that we give it based upon whose glory we live for. Lust of the flesh it's that natural desire in a wants to live its way out in some way contrary to God's will, some sort of selfishness. Think of God-given sexual appetite begins to give way to immorality. God-given physical appetite gives way to gluttony. God-given need for rest gives way to laziness. It's where God gives us a certain desire, but we corrupt it based upon who it exists for, me or God's glory. Listen, we're not sinful because we sin. We sin because we're sinful. It's a nature issue. It's a nature problem. So which nature do we feed? The spiritual nature that has now been forgiven in Christ or the flesh nature that I continue to cling on to? Which one do you feed? What do you do? What do you read? What do you watch? What do you talk about? What truths are on your mind? What do you think on? What are you pursuing? What do you dwell on? That's how you know if it's flesh, if it's your glory, or if it's God's glory. The lust of the eyes appeals to our affections. Proverbs 20, 12 says that hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made both. So 
The eyes are the window to the, well, uh -huh, they sure are, to the mind, to the emotions, to the feelings, to the desires, the things I set before my eyes. What does Job say? I will set no unclean thing before my eyes because if my eyes see it, my heart will want it. And the more I set it before my eyes, the more I will want it. And before long, I will justify it because I cannot be trusted in this world. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said to those who of old, you shall, not commit, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. The eyes will always say, in that moment, if you don't have a game plan to protect your eyes, in that moment, your eyes will say, play now, pay later. And it's a lie. And it will continue to lie to you until it absolutely destroys you. It will always give birth to death. It was... His eyes that led David to lie, from lying to committing adultery, from committing adultery to ultimately murder because of what he saw with his eyes that he would not bring under the glory of the Father. And then the pride of life, I'm almost finished. Appeals to our ambitions, self-glorification. This pride, this vain glory, this boasting arrogance. We wouldn't say that, but it refers to the braggart who exaggerates what he has because he cares more about what other people think about him than he does care about what God thinks about him. It is an I, me, my attitude. It doesn't have to be bad. It's just not Christ. It's not a particular lifestyle. It's a particular way of thinking. It glorifies himself rather than glorifying God. So when you think about this attitude that John is trying to get us to, you think like specifically pride, think about Jesus's birth and rank. Did Jesus make much of himself? No, he was born of a carpenter's son, a poor man's child. His possessions, the son of man has no place to lay his head. Over and over, you begin to see that Jesus, uh, Jesus did not make much of himself where he came from. Can any good thing come from Nazareth? On uh, the pe people that he knew, the people he hung around, he said he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. On pride and intellect, he said, as the Father has taught me, I speak on these things. Self-will, he said, not my will, but yours be done. On righteousness, he said, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So in closing, Jesus said we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And when we fail to love God appropriately, with any arena in our life, our heart, our flesh, our spirit, it begins to give birth to sin. John is talking about sin in our heart, in our flesh, in our mind. But when you choose to love God with all you are, there is no room left for the love of the world.
So Christians must evaluate their eyes, our ears, our desires, our possessions. Why in the world would we ever form on the side of the world? Three times he tells us that the world and the lust thereof is fading away. In verse 8, he already has told us that the darkness is on the run. Here in verse 17, he tells us that the world is on the run. What remains? What lasts? What endures? The one doing the will of God. This one abides forever. Will you bow your heads with me, please? John 17, 4, Jesus said, I have glorified you on the earth. I have, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. I have glorified you on the earth. He told his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Is that what, is that what you can say? Can you, can you say that, living the life of Christ? I have glorified you, Father, on the earth. My salvation exists for your glory, not my freedom. I have finished the work that you have given me to do. I am working, Lord, to remember that I have been blessed to be a blessing. Maybe you've forgotten your identity is in Christ. Maybe you've forgotten what God has done for you, the benchmarks that has been set for you. You, can, you have forgotten the prayers of thanksgiving that you've prayed before God because you have seen his mighty hand at work answering prayer and setting you straight, but you've made it about you. You are the one who has benefited from your salvation instead of allowing the Lord to receive the glory. His faithfulness to you. You have forgotten the transformation in your life. You have forgotten the forgiveness of sin and so many of you now are paralyzed because you cannot let go of what Jesus has already let go of. And I'm telling you, remembering who you are in forgiveness and glory will have a tremendous impact on what you crave Desire, pursue, allow, and rationalize, and ultimately fall in love with. Will you stand with me, please? Lord, this morning I ask that you would have your way with us, you would speak with depth into those places in our lives where we have tolerated so many things rationalize so many things and it is a heavy word this morning but if we love the things of the world the love of the Father is not in us it's simple it's complicated because it's not so easy for us because we're constantly enticed and we constantly fail 
So today we thank you for your forgiveness. And I pray that in this moment, we will remember that it is our identity in Christ that is the centerpiece of our lives. It's, it's, it's the reason that we, we speak and move and gives us opportunities for ministry to encourage. And Lord, so many of us have used it to, to better ourselves, and, and it's good, but it's, it's, even, it's even correct, but it's incomplete. And so because of that, we've grown in pride, arrogance. We've grown in complacency and laziness. So I pray, Lord, that you would set a fire in our hearts, that you allow us to see that you and you alone are the chief end of life. Glorify you and our relationship with you. So this morning, Lord, as best I can, we repent. I pray that each one of us would find a place of emptiness as we come to you and say, we are sorry. Restore to us the joy of your salvation for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.